welcome to the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara, a celebration of Bill Hannah, Joe Barbara, and the thousands of people past and present who have shared in their entertainment tradition. And now your host, Greg Airbar. Thanks, Chris Anthony, and welcome to another show. We are going to have a really, I think, legend and icon is used too often. So I won't embarrass this gentleman with legend and Not icon. Often enough. <laughs> no, no, okay. He's a legend. He's an icon. He's spectacular and stupendous. And as Merv would say, a fine artist. A fine artist. He does it all. David Pruxma, or Dave, as he likes to be called, has worked on some of the greatest animated films ever made. And we just had Nick Renarion, who also worked on some of the greatest animation ever in history and are also huge fans of Hanna-Barbera Productions and authorities on them. And so anyway, I want to welcome David Pruxma. Thank you for being with us, Dave. My pleasure. Thanks for asking. Let's just get a little bit background, because you came from the East Coast originally. I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., about seven miles outside of Washington, D.C., in Falls Church, Virginia, which was kind of semi-rural back then. You know, it was kind of suburban, but we had a creek and crick and uh, (laughs) places to play like that and it was a very wonderful time nobody had really fenced yards you could just go all over parents didn't worry about you so it was really kind of an idyllic time in that era of the 60s which was already starting to change but we always you know were able to run free of course we'd run free for a while and then the cartoons would come on and we'd come home (laughs) right right well even as a kid you know at seven eight nine ten um, I knew there was a difference between what Hanna-Barbera did and what Disney did. Yeah. Disney was kind of like, like when Ludwig von Drake would be on the color program on Sunday nights, I'd go, oh, this kind of animation is much more fluid. It's much more different than Hanna-Barbera. But I like them both for different reasons. Exactly. Disney was like the art, and Hanna-Barbera was more like pop culture, yeah. although it had art involved in it. I always saw... Um, Hanna-Barbera's being pop culture of that era. And honestly, the shows I liked the most were the ones that appealed to adults. The primetime shows like Top Cat, Flintstones, Jetsons, Johnny Quest. Because those shows were hipper than anything else on TV. The other cartoons were like made for kiddies. Mm-hmm. And Hanna-Barbera did not pull punches. I mean, there's some really fun stuff and really genuinely funny sitcom moments in especially the Flintstones. And we should be fair, you know, there were the Jay Ward cartoons as well as Roger Ramjet. Well, those, so they those were, were exceptional. And they were hip. They were very hip. They, but Hanna-Barbera probably isn't always on that list. And Huckleberry Hound, originally, before Rocky and Bowinkle, was the sophisticated show for the college kids. And the right. the people in lounges, you know, they'd have the TV set for Huckleberry Hound in bars and lounges because it was like Beanie yeah. and Cecil and Kukla, Fran and Ollie. There was a huge college and adult following for Huckleberry Hound, because that kind of humor in a cartoon, because they were so verbal. There wasn't a stigma back then. I remember, um, I just read an article recently, and I was really surprised to hear this, that Rod Serling's daughter or son, I can't remember, one of his kids. His daughter, yeah. He absolutely loved the Flintstones. It's in her book. Yeah. They watched the Flintstones together. You know, I believe Greta Garbo also loved the Flintstones. It's an interesting show, because it was the first primetime show for everybody, And it had something for everybody. But the writing in particular, especially in that first season, I mean, every almost every episode in that first season is a gem. They're hilariously funny to this day. Mm -hmm. 
and infinitely quotable, plus you had these great lines spoken by the masters of the craft, making them even better. Here's one. You can use my chair, mother-in-law, dear. I'll sit on a box. You know, Alan Reed (laughs) delivered that so beautifully. It's the way it was delivered. Yeah, it's really, really fun. And like you say, the cast... The voice people, I mean, as a kid, I didn't know exactly who they were. Later on, I found out that Bea Benadera, because we watched Petticoat Junction too, mm-hmm. and I didn't know that she had done the voice of Betty until much later. And then I'm like, whoa, and then I could, how could I miss it? You know, it's like so mm-hmm. obvious. And that would be a voice now that they would just, well, not even now, then, they would just give to somebody else and they would just, just do it, you know. Even Jerry Johnson, to an extent, just kind of walk through it. But B gave it a depth that other studios didn't have in their voice acting. That ensemble was very much like I Love Lucy in a way. They knew each other. They interacted in a way that was very natural. If Fred picks something up and he kind of groans when he picks it up or something like that while he's talking, that's boarded. But they don't know exactly how it's going to look because they record the voices first. But it works. It feels completely natural and completely real to me, even though it's limited animation. They did characters... They did character animation, not just motion to sound. Yeah, that's a thing that has come up before, that you can do character animation on a limited budget, and you can tell who the artists were doing if you get to know which artist did what. It's not illustrated radio because the visual is an integral part of it, though they play beautifully as audio. Uh, And Johnny Quest is very visual, and you kind of have to see stuff, but even that... There's nothing wrong with that because Hanna-Barbera had such strong audio in every department. It did. Their soundtracks were just amazing. People don't always put artistry in the same sentence, unfortunately, with Hanna-Barbera. But you animated Mrs. Potts, for gosh sakes. Yes, I did. And let's talk about some of your credits. Okay. You did work on a lot of the Renaissance Disney films, starting with Oliver and Company, The Little Mermaid. Oh, and you animated in Little Mermaid... Will Ryan's character, a good friend yes, of Will Ryan. Yes, the seahorse. The little seahorse. Yeah, and that was a character that was only in one scene. There was a storyboard drawing that Ed Gombert had done that they kind of liked. John Musker said, here, Dave, just do it. So I did the design work, and I, I even did color work on it, suggestions for color and whatnot. That's how small the studio was then. And they let me do all the scenes with him. So I was like, I just did them all, you know? Really that was the first time I got a sense of, creating a character from scratch you know everything else was kind of you were on somebody's unit and it was kind of like an amalgam but when you get a character cast to you that you're the only one that does it really is totally responsible for the whole performance so i started at disney in 1981 so i actually started on mickey's christmas carol oh yeah that's Um, right yeah and we were on the lot back then on 1f11 the wing and that was where they were doing mickey's christmas carol and they brought us in because the Bluth people had left, and they brought a bunch of us in, uh, about 10 or maybe 12, to the training program under Eric Larson in the summer, August 31st, 1981. I'll never forget it because it was like, my life is changing. You know, it really was. It was such a great experience back then because the studio really hadn't changed that much. You know, they were still doing cells, and the ink and paint department was still in the ink and paint building, and the animation was still in the animation building. It was really an amazing time. You walk on that lot, and it was like going back to 1955. People were riding bikes. The same people that recorded or, or worked on the soundtracks for Mickey Mouse Club were still sitting out there. Andy Candido would sit out on a bench in front of the building. It was oh, wow. Really kind of astounding that nothing had really changed. And of course it had to, honestly. It was mired in the past, and they needed to come up to date a little bit. And that was kind of the beginning of 
our chance to arc with our films. That was kind of a passing of the gauntlet from the old regime to the new. Uh, but they've been there and they were watching us and we knew them and they would help critique and stuff like that. They passed on a lot of really great stuff mm-hmm. to us, especially Eric. You have to know by doing it in the trenches. And that's where I really learned a lot, was being an assistant for a lot of animators. I started out as a rough assistant in 81, but they were giving me animation right from the beginning. So I have animation in Mickey's Christmas Carol, just spots here and there. But it was a great way to learn because they were watching you very carefully and they were guiding you. Then you learned the process, you learned how to flip, you learned everything. And then you trained the people that came in after you. Uh, how to flip and how to keep volume and how to draw a solid drawing that moves in space rather than just flat drawings. I know uh, volume, but what is flip? Flipping, okay. So all the pages, all the all the paper is registered at the bottom or at the top. There's pegs at the top and the bottom. Oh, like a flip book. Yeah, okay. Right. So you can put a page between each finger and one on the disc and roll them. like, mm. And you can actually see the motion and you can track it. And you can say, is it following the arcs correctly? Is it moving smoothly and fluidly? Or is it getting out of track? So it was a great way to test your animation. Because back then, we didn't even have video. It was in its early, early, early stages. So we would animate a scene, and then we would... I think we did have a reel-to-reel video. It was very, very archaic. It didn't even have sound. And we'd shoot it on that, and we'd show a scratchy test to our directing animators. And then they would say, okay, we'll send it out for a pencil test. So you'd package it up, put a camera slip on it, you know, make sure the X sheet was correct, send it to camera, and three days later you'd get a strip of 35 millimeter black and white line test film mm-hmm. cut and, and glued in a loop so that you could put it on the moviola and watch it over and over and over again and get critiqued. Very much like the old sweat box that they talk about. I mean, it wasn't the sweat box because Walt wasn't there and we were crammed in underneath the stairway with a million other people. So. <laughs> but you're sweating for a different reason because they're looking at your stuff and they're, they're critiquing it, you know, and you're just like, please, please don't, don't kill me, you know. <laughs> yeah. But they were very, very supportive and very pleasant. So that was my first introduction to Disney animation. And I want to point out here, because this is something that you don't hear very often. Back then we did everything. I mean, everybody had their job, but if you finished your job on a picture before you went on to another movie, you helped with cleanup, cleanup in betweening, checking. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of checking on Mickey's Christmas Carol and Black Cauldron. Even Ink and Paint, they would bring cells and paints over to our wing in our building, and people were inking and painting cells. Isn't that um, kind of better management? Because it gives you not only an idea of what the entire process is. But it also, it keeps everybody busy, but it's yes. better than just boxing somebody in and saying, he or she only does that and never letting them. Right. And Walt always saw beyond people's basic skills and kind of intuited that you could do this even when you didn't know. I mean, I did stuff at the studio that I did not know what was in you. Walt Disney was the person who knew how to get that out of people and get versatility and quality out of people to the point where a lot of times when they did go someplace else, the person would say, oh, this person is the one who really has the talent or that. But in the absence of Walt, it was different. And not that other people didn't take up the mantle, but he did make a difference. That was his real talent. He could sense talent. He could draw out of you, like I said before, what you didn't know was in you. Yeah, It's like you look at a scene that you do, you work three, four weeks on it, and you look at a scene and and it actually comes to life and you go, did that come out of me? Yeah. The old guy said it takes about 10 years to become a really good animator. And in my case, I would have to say that's very accurate because although I was animating right from the beginning and the stuff I did wasn't 
bad. They wouldn't have put it in the film if it was. But it was a learning process. And each film, you take what you learn and put into the next one. And I was excited for the first time, really, really, really excited on Hunchback, which was pretty late. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had done Victor and Hugo. With Victor and Hugo, there were different kinds of characters for me. And I had a lot of freedom with business and whatnot. And I remember sitting in dailies and going, watching the film and kind of smiling. At the, and then I thought, oh, my God, I just fooled myself into believing that these sequential drawings photographed in time are a living performance. Oh, wow. I, and that to me was the biggest thrill of animation. That's when I knew I had made not only, well, my goal as an animator. I wanted to be that, that good that I could fool myself. Because that's really an animator's job is fooling people into believing that these drawings are actual people. I also wanted to jump around a little bit because, you know, we are talking about Hanna-Barbera, but we're also talking about Disney. And, you know, I've done limited animation and I've done full animation. But you have to understand those early days of Hanna-Barbera, they were, had already kind of experimented with limited animation by doing commercials for television, you know, while they were working at MGM. And the early Hanna-Barbera stuff was pretty much animated by a handful of people that were animators at MGM, Ed Barge. Maybe Irv Spence did some commercials. Irv didn't come over right away. Um, Ken Muse, Don Patterson, these guys that were at MGM. Michael Law is another one I really uh -huh. like. I love his. But they did the early episodes, and I think they didn't call it limited animation. Then they called it, this is my understanding of it. I wasn't there, but this is my understanding of it, talking to people who were. It was called streamlined animation. Ah, okay. And it later became known as limited animation. But my understanding is they did it at MGM. They would get a story for Tom and Jerry, and then they would do a limited reel. And I believe it was developed, the technique was developed by Ken Muse, one of the big animators on Tom and Jerry, who later went over to Hanna-Barbera and did a lot of their early stuff. And his stuff is very distinct to mm -hmm. his animation. They would do a story reel that had limited animation in it. They could test the timing without actually going through the full animation process and make sure that things were working so they know exactly what to put in and exactly what to leave out. And then once that was approved and they had the timing right and everything, then they would go through and they'd do the full animation for the theaters. I don't remember if this was in Barbara or Hannah's book, but there is mention of on Puss Gets the Boot because it was a hard yeah. sell because everybody's like, who wants a cat and mouse? And I think... Barbera talks about doing something like that. It almost sounds like an animatic. It basically was kind of an animatic, but the animators would do the drawings. The layout people would do layouts of where the character is, the size, what it looked like, and the designs and everything like that. And the animators would come in and make that work in animation by timing on the X sheet. And that was <laughs> Hannah's uh, specialty, was precise timing. They called it planned animation, too. He wanted it all completely planned. So that's one of the reasons they were able to develop it is because he knew how to plan everything to the last frame. Yeah, his you timing know. is really impeccable, especially on those early Hanna-Barbera shows because timing was so important on those. Yeah. There's a Tom and Jerry cartoon called T for Two, which I love. And there's a scene where Tom's underwater and Jerry, these bees are coming after him, and Jerry puts a funnel on the top of the reed that he's breathing through and all the bees go in his mouth. And then it just cuts to a down shot of the lake and the camera's kind of trucking back a little bit really slowly and mm -hmm. there's this tense music. And it's exactly the right amount of time before Tom bursts out of the water and bees are in his mouth and it, that horrible scream that he does, it <laughs> makes me laugh out loud every single time because the timing is to the exact frame that mm -hmm. it should be. That's what makes the Tom and Jerry's hold up so well. They yes. seem to be going on forever. 
And yes. it also, Hannah was a musician and a lyricist, and he wrote poetry, and all of that came into being. And you can still see evidence of it, even in the limited yes. cartoons as they went yes. on. You can still see it. There is a rhythm to them. Absolutely. Even though it's very limited, and some of them are cruder than others, just depending on how much time they had or who was animating on it. Some of them are remarkably resourceful. Carlo Vinci did a lot of full stuff early on, or fullish stuff, I should say, because of his experience working so fast at Peritudes. You know, then he went to MGM, and then when MGM closed, he went over to HB. Was Carlo Vinci the one that put the little layer of fat on the back of Fred's neck? <laughs> the back of Frank, they call it. Yeah, the back of Frank. <laughs> See, those are the little details, and they're so watchable. He um, always does these really, really flowery movements. Like when they run out, they would jump up in the air and then zip out. And he always did like this: the head and the hand would go the same time. Now you listen to me. Oh blah, yeah. Blah, 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 you know, or he'd do the wrist thing, Frederick. You know, that oh, he always did that. Yeah. And, and the walk of Yogi Bear. You know that bongo walk. Boom, 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 and that was all Carlo. And there's an example too where. You don't have the money, and you don't have the frame count, but Yogi seemed like a heavy bear, and when Fred, he had drank too much water or something, and he was sloshing back <laughs> and coffee. forth. It was coffee. It was you know, we're trying to keep him awake. The dinopeptic germ. The dinopeptic germ. Yeah, you are a goner. You are a goner. Yeah. <laughs> and they put the toothpicks yeah, on his yeah, eyes. That's the funniest. That's one of the funniest episodes of the second season, I think. Yeah. When you were at Disney... Did people talk about Hanna-Barbera, and did they talk about it, perhaps, in, in nice terms? <laughs> Me and Nick were probably the only one. No, everybody had an appreciation because we were all of that era. But it wasn't really a passion for a lot of people. I just really enjoyed that product. I didn't think I'd ever work for Aunt Disney. You know, I thought, I'll never be good enough for that. Maybe I can work at Hanna-Barbera. But by the time I got to Hanna-Barbera, it wasn't what it was. It was different caliber of work, uh, and it was much faster. I mean, they were putting some finesse in them back then, some artistry in the early episodes, you know, in the Flintstones backgrounds and in the Yogi Bear backgrounds, I'm thinking in particular, they're very nice. Well, they had, oh gosh, I can't think of the name of the background artist who worked Art in... Art Montalegre. Well, he was among them, but he also worked on these Scooby-Doo backgrounds. He was a cranky guy. Oh, uh, the... oh yeah. What's his, what was his name? Um, Walt Paraguay. Yes, yes. If yes. you isolate... You know, and you can do this with video. You can isolate the backgrounds. The Jetsons, they're spectacular. Which are amazing. I think those are Bick and Back. That was Dick a Bick and Back, back. yeah. I love his interpretation of the Benedict designs. Bick and Back would come in and, and give them a soul and a, a personality. Mm -hmm. uh, he'd do the model sheets, you know, rough and ready and Flintstones and stuff like that. Really great stuff. When you worked on the model sheets and then you had to come up with different poses by necessity, did they add those poses to the model sheets? Uh, I would. You know, I had a staff of, of animators underneath me. You know, I was, as a supervising animator, I was responsible for the consistent look and performance of the characters. So I would do test scenes first and I would create a, a rough model sheet out of that. But you're learning about the character and how to turn it. I'm thinking about Mrs. Potts in particular. I did Be Our Guest first, and I did a few scenes where she's bouncing around. And while she's bouncing, she's kind of turning in space and moving in space back and forth. Mm -hmm. And so I really learned how to draw her from every angle right away in the first few scenes. And then what I did was I took drawings from the animation as it was approved, and I would make new model sheets based on the animation, which I would then distribute to my animators. And we all got a, a Mac hat. They would do a maquette of the character in three dimensions in resin 
and yeah. then cast them, and everybody would get one. And I still have all mine for all my characters. Oh, do you really? Wow. I wow. do. They're wonderful. I love. I would never part with those, ever. For those listening, you can see both what maquettes look like and also get an idea of what an animatic is from the film The Reluctant Dragon, because the baby weem sequence is pretty much exactly. an animatic. It is. And then as, yes. at one point, Robert Benchley picks up a handful of the, he looks at the ones from various films and those are used so you can see the characters from different angles in a way you know they had that problem with peanuts when they first were animating peanuts because charles schultz was saying well i don't know i never drew charlie brown from that angle so they kind of had to redesign in a way that was faithful if you watch the specials and the films they're a little bit different because they got to be yes yes interesting thing about what you just said about the reluctant dragon I remember seeing that the first time, the whole film, not just the short. I love the short, but the whole film. And when he picks up the maquettes, they actually show them, and there's Captain Hook in there. Yeah. Now, this is 1939, 1940. Mm-hmm. So you can see the lead time on that stuff. That's right. You know, Planning. you're already thinking about stuff, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, Alice in Wonderland may have been the first. That was in contention to being, it was going to be Snow White or Alice and maybe another. But same thing with Pete's Dragon, 1977. But Walt bought the rights to the story. He knew about a lot of things that even came after his passing. Yes. And people don't realize how long it takes and how many artists are involved in the process. In animation, it's very hard to say that's mine because technically it's not. You know, it, it is. The performance is yours, but partially because the voice, unless it's a pantomime character like Flit, the characters are governed to some extent by the vocal performance. Mm. But you can, there's a lot of interpretation in that. And now, folks, stay with us for part two when our guest Dave Pruxma talks about working with Angela Lansbury, the Flintstones, Tex Avery, Fonz and the Happy Days Gang, and more here on the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara. 